Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. All right, today we have the story of Private First Class John McGrath. McGrath is serving with the Golf Company, part of the 85th Infantry Regiment, rolled up under the 10th Mountain Division during the Second World War. Specifically, we're going to talk about April 14, 1945 in Italy. And that's right at the very tail end of the conflict in the European theater of operations. Now, a couple of things worth diving into before we get into McGrath's story. The first is going to be the 10th Mountain Division. What is it? Well, the 10th Mountain Division was stood up during the Second World War by the United States in 1943, I believe. And the idea for this type of unit, a, a specialized mountain warfare unit, came out of another event in Europe. We, we watched the Soviet Union, we, the world, I should say, watched the Soviet Union invade Finland during something known as the Winter War. It was a three or four month fight in 1939, 1939 into 1940. And the Soviet Union struggled against Finland. And that was unexpected. Finland, you know, look at the size of Finland compared to the Soviet Union. It should have been a cakewalk. But the Finns were able to utilize the terrain to their advantage and the, the terrain was, was mountains and it was in the winter. So the U S and, and many other countries took note of this and the United States decided we're going to go ahead and stand up a specialized mountain unit. They started with a battalion. It was the 87th mountain infantry battalion. I believe um, that became the 87th infantry regiment, which is, which uh, became and is today a part of the 10th mountain division. So, the idea was let's specially train and equip a unit to fight in that type of environment rather than adding that to, you know, the overall training block for every soldier that's going off to war. And there's a couple of reasons there, but we need to think of the 10th mountain division in the same light during the second world war in the same light as the 101st or 82nd airborne division. These are elite units. These are elite units that are recruited for, they receive special training, they receive special equipment, and they're, they are tagged for a certain type of mission set. So it's, it's, it'll get a little gray throughout the war, of course, but these are you know, elite units designed to be used in a certain way. And the 10th Mountain Division, they're going to go through, what do you need to know to fight in the mountains, right? So you're going to have um, mountain climbing, rappelling, mountaineering, you're going to have skiing, snowshoeing, survival in that type of terrain. Um, a big part is going to be how learning how learning how your equipment functions at elevation and also at temperature. So, you know, there's there's yes, there's a wide range of temperatures for the troops that are in you know going to land in France and move through France and Belgium, and of course they're going to hit the nasty nasty winter in Belgium, but the extremes that we're expecting in the Italian Alps are going to be severe. Add to that the elevation changes. And how does that impact, you know, your vehicle? Do you need a different type of lubricant for an engine operating at that elevation and, and at, uh, at that temperature? How about your munitions? How do your bullets fly? How do mortars fly in the Alps versus, you know, at sea level in Normandy? These are the types of things that that made the case for and won the day for a specific mountain unit. 
very specific sets, very, a very specific set of skills to be used when, when needed. The time that that unit was needed was in Italy during the Italian campaign. There's nowhere else in the Second World War where it made as much sense to send a specialized mountain unit. And the 10th Mountain would arrive in January of 1944 and fight in Italy for about a year and a half. It would be the, the extent of their Second World War combat. They would fight in Italy until the war ended. Which brings us to the Italian campaign, which to me is a very interesting part of the Second World War. There were, you know, really the one of the main reasons the U.S. and the Allies, I should say, all these decisions were Allied decisions, um, are even in Italy, is because of a bit of a compromise. And the U.S. was chomping at the bit to get into the fight, and but we also needed to wait until we had enough stockpiled equipment, men, um, trained men to make this big jump across the English channel to, to invade France, which everybody on the allied side knew was going to be this, this end goal that we were working towards. But if we did it too soon and we weren't ready and we got repelled then, then or repulsed, then it could be years before we could make that jump again. But we also didn't want to just sit by and let Germany get stronger. We wanted to do something to try to distract we wanted to do something to help. How about help the allied nations um, practice, maybe, is the right way to put it. These are countries, the United States, I'll, I'll stick with here, that hasn't been in combat in 20 plus years. They need to exercise those logistics muscles. They need to exercise those troop movement muscles and, and, and kind of get back in the flow of combat before we take on you know, the Atlantic wall and, and try this drive through France and Belgium into Germany. So we kind of settle on Italy. It's, it's considered the soft underbelly of, of uh, Nazi Europe. It's, there's the, the possibility there that there's Italians spread all across Europe helping support their, um, their Nazi allies. And there's a couple thoughts with invading Italy. One is an Italian stationed in XYZ Europe providing kind of a rear guard action for, for Nazi troops, hears that the allies have invaded his homeland might leave and not be interested in hanging out in some other place in Europe. They want to get home and defend their home territory. So we, it's possible to throw a little bit of division in the Axis ranks here. We also know that it's possible. It's a small chance but it's possible that if we can make our way up through Italy, we'll have a direct line into Germany, potentially, and this is, was more of a Churchill thought, potentially cutting off the, um, the Soviet Union's chance to come into Germany from the east. That was, was just an idea he threw out there. But of, of course, it's a third front. We, we have the, the front on the east with the Soviet Union by the time, really by the time the things kick off in Italy in 1943. There's the fight in the East. The fight in the West hasn't really materialized yet on the beaches of Normandy. That'll be in June of 1944, so about a year after the Italian campaign starts. But the final point I kind of want to get to with the Italian campaign is the idea of tying up German troops. You know, Germany is not that big of a country. They're, they're in the process right now in 1943, when the Italian campaign kicks off to their south, they are defending the entire 
western coast of Europe, just about from an Allied invasion. They have troops stationed all over Europe, maintaining the rear guard, if you will, and they are fighting a losing battle in the Soviet Union that is bleeding their resources. This isn't some massive, this isn't the Soviet Union that has unlimited resources in terms of personnel. It's going to be very, very challenging for Germany to fight a three-front war. And opening up the fight in Italy puts that burden on, on Germany. And one of the things that you'll see throughout the fight in Italy is, I don't know at what point it becomes clear that we're not actually going to punch through and make it all the way up into Germany. But at some point that decision is made that, hey, we don't actually need to punch through as long as we can continue to tie up German resources. And to me, that's the interesting part of the Italian campaign. By the time the Germans surrender in Italy in 1945, just days before the overall German surrender, there's going to be about 500,000 German troops involved in the fighting. Do you think half a million German troops could have been utilized somewhere else around the, you know, their, their crumbling empire? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people holding down a line in a country that's supposed to be their ally. Remember, one of the goals of having Italy as an ally, one of Germany's goals is to have somebody on their southern border or southern flank, I should say, able to protect that, able to hold their own. So they didn't have to be there. Instead, they have half a million troops in Italy. That, you know, this is as the Battle of Berlin is, is taking place and the capital city is being devastated, ravaged by Red Army troops from the east. And, and as, as the U.S. and allies start moving in from the west, do you think half a million German troops could have been used there? Maybe, but they can't because the allies have essentially, you know, grabbed them by the throat in, in Germany or in, excuse me, in Italy and keep fighting and keep fighting and keep fighting. And they fight for, for just about two years straight in Italy. It's pretty nasty combat. It's, you know, those, the mountains, there's these, there are these mountain passes that are heavily defended and these defensive lines that the Germans keep moving back from south to north as the allies advance. And it's it's also a unique campaign in that for the United States, at least, there's not really anywhere else in the war where we start and end the war fighting in the same country. You know, that didn't happen in the Pacific. And and if you look at, you know, go a little further north into mainland Europe, you're, you're not going to see, I mean, the United States is moving through country after country after country to get to Germany. But in Italy, we're going to grab hold. We're going to tie up German troops. And we're going to fight there for about two years. One of the units that's going to see a lot of action there is going to be the 10th Mountain Division. They're going to arrive in January of 1944 and continue fighting until, until um, the Germans surrender in Italy. And that surrender would take place on uh, May 2nd, just six days before the overall German surrender um, in Berlin. But about a month prior to that is going to be, on April 9th, is going to be the United States the Allies' last big push in Italy. So this is a point where it's pretty clear Germany can't win the war by this by by you know April 9th, April 14th, kind of use that that time frame there. Germany can't win, but we also don't know how hard they're gonna fight until the end. This is a window where there's a real concern of an insurgency, of guerrilla warfare taking hold. Interesting looking back that 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 wasn't the case, um, but nonetheless, it we don't know that the war looks to be coming to a close. 
It looks to be coming to a close because by April 14th, the day we're going to talk about here with, with John McGrath, the United States are 130 miles outside of Berlin. And looking to the east, the Red Army had halted 40 miles outside of Berlin. They're going to start their assault on the capital city very, very quickly, and it's going to be devastating. And in less than a month's time, Germany will surrender. Nazi Germany will surrender. But taking place in Italy on April 14th is a few days into this final allied offensive, really kind of designed to wrap up the war in Italy. That is what Private First Class John McGrath is fighting in on 14 April 1945. His company gets pinned down by a series of German machine gun positions and defensive positions, I should say. Now, we're talking about how there are these these lines moving back. And really, because Italy is a long and narrow country, Germany was able to build these defensive lines east to west, and they would just fall back to their next set of defensive positions. It made for a brutal fight. And one of the reasons that the fighting raged in Italy for two years, that's the type of thing that's pinned down McGrath and his entire company. So a company, think think roughly 100 people pinned down from a couple from a couple positions. McGrath volunteers to run forward to try to knock out the nearest enemy position. That'll, that'll provide his unit a little bit of breathing room. And, and something we see a lot in these Medal of Honor stories is one per, you know, 50 people are pinned down, so one guy gets up and somehow does it himself. And I think it's worth talking a little bit about that. And if you're looking out across a field, if, you're design, if, if your job is to defend a field and there's 50 people running at you, you always have something to shoot at. Maybe you'll hit them all, maybe you won't, um, but you at least have no shortage of targets. If there's one person jumping up and ducking and moving left and right, it's a lot harder to hit one person, especially with machine guns. They're designed to kind of blanket an area. So sometimes sending one person randomly gets the job done. Nine times out of 10, that one person gets killed. So it's not a solid strategy to come up against a, a... you know, a sizable enemy force and say, first volunteer, go. It's, um, you're going to lose a lot of troops slowly that way. But every so often, there's a case where due to the terrain, due to what the enemy can see, somebody can kind of sneak through where 20, 30, 50, or 100 couldn't. That's going to be the case with Private First Class John McGrath. He volunteers to go forward and armed only with a rifle, takes on the first German bunker, Kills two, wounds three, and captures a machine gun, which is important. So it doesn't. I, I don't. I haven't been able to find what type of machine gun it was. Probably an MG forty two. So a a um, it can be carried. It's not really designed to be fired from standing position, but but it's light enough to where he could maneuver it around the battlefield. Um, you know, comparable to a thirty caliber U.S. machine gun um, at the time. Nonetheless, he he knocks out the first position. And captures this machine gun and from there goes on. Now, at, at this point, he's kind of in the enemy line. So the enemy is looking, the Germans are looking down at the Americans. He's kind of looking at them from the side now. They they might not see him. He uses this to his advantage. He quickly knocks out two more machine gun positions, finds a group of four German soldiers firing on his unit. He's behind them, sh- kills all four, and then moves across an open field takes fire from another machine gun placement, takes a knee and trades fire with this, uh, this final position, finally knocking it out. So this series of German 
Defensive works. They were holding up his entire company of about 100. McGrath just went up and knocked out all of them. So he makes his way back to his unit, having survived this, that that was, there's no chance he was going to survive knocking out that many enemy positions. He does. He makes it back to his lines. And now his men, his company is able to advance because the things that were holding them up, the things that were, were pinning them down are gone. So they get up, they advance forward. As soon as they start doing so, they come under a very heavy enemy artillery barrage and they're, they're kind of caught in the open. During this process, they start to take more and more casualties. And as those casualties are mounting up, um, McGrath again volunteers. This time he volunteers to go out and to begin collecting casualties as well as information on casualties to, to let people know how many stretcher bears to bring up and, and, and where the wounded are located so we can start moving them back to the rear. The shelling hasn't stopped. It's still ongoing. It's a, it's almost a death wish to go out there and do that. But if the shelling is going to go on for 20 minutes, how many of his guys are going to bleed out if he doesn't go out there and at least try? You don't know how long some of those wounded soldiers have while they're lying wounded on the battlefield. So McGrath again gets up, takes off, runs out into the shell fire. And it's during this task that at the age of 20, Private First Class John McGrath is hit by enemy fire and killed. For his actions that day on April 14, 1945, John McGrath would be awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor for playing such a pivotal role in in helping his unit to advance and saving so many lives, running around, checking on the wounded and gathering wounded information during one of the final pushes for the Allies in Italy right at the tail end of the Second World War. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.